A player shall not kick a loose ball, a forward pass, or a ball being held for a place kick by an opponent. These illegal acts do not change the status of the loose ball or forward pass, but if the player holding the ball for a place kick loses possession during a scrimmage down, it is a fumble and a loose ball. If, during a free kick, the ball remains dead. And then there's a bunch of articles and citations. This is where I think we should have uh, aesthetic rules. Like, if it looks cool, then we should allow it. I think if a catch on the sideline, if the foot isn't all the way in bounds, but it was a really good catch, we should be able to just be like, you know what? We're going to let that one slide. Wow. Um, that's that's pretty big coming from a former defensive back. I mean, it's pretty it's it's a terrible way to run a game. But I hate when I watch something and you're like, that was an amazing effort, and then they, you're like, ah, it wasn't close. You know, foot was out of the back of the end zone or something like. You only like it when it's your team that it saves. Aesthetic rules must only apply to ASC refs. Well, yeah, they let that one slide, and that means we all get a chance to see it and enjoy it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests, although not this week, talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge at D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, and I have broadcast the last 18 Stag Bowls together. Keith, would you please state your name and occupation for the record? I'm Keith McMillan. I'm the ex-player, the wit, the good looks, the uh, what else? The glue that keeps the podcast together. I think that was a, that's pretty much my four main jobs. And for those of you who listen to us at 150% speed, well, hey, it's great to have you guys too. Hopefully, we give you plenty of Division Three football knowledge to start your day with. And there's nothing we say that's so quick that you can't follow it at an incredibly increased rate of speed. That sounds like a terrible way to listen to a podcast. I, can you imagine listening to our podcast this way? But I know there are people who do so. Um, we should probably just talk about the things that happened in uh, week three of the Division Three football season. But, uh, man, it was a uh, another interesting week. Yeah, we, we had some great games, obviously. And, um, you know, one, number one and number six faced off. Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor. You had the, uh, the four top teams in the CCIW play. You had uh, John Carroll barely getting by. You had some uh, some other interesting clashes all the way, really up and down the um, you know the top twenty five and, and even beyond the top twenty five. You know what Whitewater did in the fourth quarter now forces us to keep an eye on them still, even if they're outside the top twenty five. I thought week three pretty much lived up to its billing, and the big theme that that came out of it for me is that this has been kind of a running thing for me, but that defense really isn't dead yet. You know, we asked back in kickoff if the defense heavy finish by elite teams at the end of last season was an anomaly. And the very early returns would suggest number one ranked Mary Harden Baylor, uh, which limited uh, number six Mary Linfield to uh, 141 yards of offense. Well, neither team penetrated the other's red zone. Um, it, it would suggest the very early returns would suggest that uh, defense is not dead. There there were some other occurrences that, that fit in that um, – category, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, this week. Number four, Wheaton limited Carthage to three yards rushing on 33 attempts. Mountain Union has now outscored its opponents 127 to three. So I do think we're either seeing a general resurgence. Uh, teams like Case Western Reserve, Husson, Brockport, and Harden-Simmons are also off to good defensive starts through, th- through three weeks. Uh, or, we're, or it's just a sense that teams that are strong on defense in an age of offensive domination are in a really good place. Maybe defense was never dead, and this is a theme that I'm personally perpetuating given my inherent biases. <laughs> since, uh, since Adam Turr took a completely opposite tack 
while looking at this week in, in this week's snap judgments, and you'll have to go online uh, to read that. But I, I do think, however, that D3 has had its fair share of 53-48, 45-40, and 43-41 games. And because of that, stout defenses stand out. I just had a brief glimpse and a brief thought of uh, a podcast just being us reading snap judgments or some other column or some other feature from uh, d3football.com. And, uh, of course, the other thing that's going through my mind as you're saying all these things is, the cliche about defense winning championships, which cliches are the thing that uh, we uh, tend to shun like the plague around here. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's a situation where the defense doesn't even play well across the entirety of the game, but can salvage its performance with a big stop in crunch time, like a team salvaging a, a one and nine season by beating the arch rival in the final game of the season. Like uh, the week one game uh, between Rhodes and Willamette, Rhodes won at 45-42. No one's going to mistake that for a defensive battle. But at the end, Rhodes wins it with a defensive play. Trent Holt sacks the Willamette quarterback, forces a fumble. And there's probably, a, you know, close to 100 examples like that in any given season. Well, there were some some big examples like that on Saturday. You know, Frostburg had to come from behind against Christopher Newport and then come up with a big play at the end. You know, another huge defensive play and a defensive battle from Saturday was John Carroll getting the late interception to survive at Baldwin-Wallace. Let's spin off on that for a second. Uh, a couple of our prognosticators picked that to be a good game. Uh, one even picked it as the top 25 upset of the week. I thought that uh, Jim Hilbert's impact as head coach at Baldwin-Wallace wouldn't be enough to carry the Yellow Jackets in this game this season, but it nearly was. Keith, I I'm interested in your take on this. Is Baldwin-Wallace's resurgence coming sooner than expected, um, or is it by being inspired against a rival, or maybe is it because John Carroll isn't as good as uh, we have them in the top 25? It may be a little bit of both, but I think, you know, if you're just looking at week three, you'd obviously say Baldwin-Wallace looks like they may be a top half OAC team uh, again, which they were for, you know, at one time for a while, they were the team that challenged Mount Union or one of the two teams that would challenge Mount Union in a given season. Uh, they're not, they haven't been quite there the past several seasons and they're not quite there yet. But I think it's a little early to judge because uh, that that's still there's still some other teams at the top of that conference where they have to run through you know your Heidelberg your Ohio Northern um, before you say Baldwin Wallace is back necessarily. Uh, another game that you mentioned earlier, not necessarily defensively or at least not a defensive battle on both sides of the ball, but uh, talking about Whitewater, uh, four fourth quarter scores, all of them on long drives in the win at WashU. Uh, all 59-yard uh, drives are longer. Keith, obviously, WashU is not uh, this year. I, actually, I shouldn't even necessarily say obviously, but that's my impression from uh, having written about them for kickoff, uh, is that they're not going to be on the same level as a third-place team in the CCIW or a third-place team in the MIAC. So I don't know how much of that is Whitewater flips the switch, kind of gets things back together. Uh, and how much of it is uh, is WashU? I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks against Oshkosh, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and that's the great thing about the the season and when you get into conference play, where where Whitewater is, they have to, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll judge them on how they do against Oshkosh and how they do. Now now you have to worry about maybe Stout is going to be tough lacrosse. It's going to be a, a tough run. But if I felt like they played um, a, a little more loosely, I guess it just it just seemed like. Um, 
you know, the pressure's off them to live up to their name, to be this great team, and you just go out, and, and you need to just get a win. Just like when you have zero points on the board, you just need to get some points on the board. They got it. They did it in the fourth quarter. Perhaps they found a running back or they found their footing in the running game, which is what they struggle with against Illinois Wesleyan and Concordia Moorhead, who are turning out to be two pretty good teams this season. So I don't think those are embarrassing losses, and I don't think we thought so at the time. But it's good to just get that one under their belt and to, and to do it the way they did it, long drives in the fourth quarter, kind of playing their style. Uh, I, I think it means if you're if you're a voter who's dropped them out of the top 25, you still have to keep them in that group that you keep that, that you watch right around uh, outside the top 25. And if they beat Oshkosh, um, then they're right back in it. One other kind of big picture question I, I wanted to kind of touch on here in the top of the show, Keith, uh, was the uh, the center Hendricks game. And uh, when I at the moment when I wrote this in the rundown, I think a center was up 32-13, or maybe it was the spot where they were up 28-7. to And I was intending to use this as a uh, opportunity to talk about uh, the difference between year four and year five for a brand new program. Uh, Hendricks went through this big surge where they uh, built a program up from nothing and they were very successful. And then uh, in a situation where this year they have to replace basically the only quarterback they've ever had success with, right? The the all-time running back in the program's history, short as it was. Um, and then, you know, Miles Thompson, who has gotten some playing time over the course of the last couple of years as a backup, kind of rewrote this a uh, little bit of the script well you used the phrase building a program and and i think that's probably something we should seize on and pull out you can build a team and especially if you have that that advantage of of uh the first couple years you're playing your young players they're getting a lot more time on the field than normal freshmen sophomores would then you have a great um junior senior class and your year four your year five you may have uh, a, a bump of success and then we've, we've seen teams do that and then plateau or tail tail back off because there's a difference between building a good team for a year or two and building a good program and good programs, as we've seen across the nation. They, they plug guys in. They don't lose sight of, of, of who's next in the pipeline. And, and in football, I don't really think you ever can because you're always so close to having to, to substitute somebody in. But I do think there's a, there's a big difference between a quarterback lifting a program or one star player, whether it be on offense or defense, lifting a program and a, a program graduating a great class and then you know, backfilling it with another class or, or another two, three, four classes. And that's why we, you and I run into to coaches minutes after they lose their playoff game. They're like, oh, we're behind our rivals in recruiting because that's the way they live. They have to they, they want to build class after class after class so you have a program and a pipeline and not just one good spike. Keith, we could spin this off into yet another topic about uh, the around the topic of building a program, but we'll come back to that a little bit later in our show because right now I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by FanRays. FanRays is an e-commerce platform that provides hassle-free team merchandise shops for athletics programs at thefanrays.com. Keith, we talked about uh, some of the features last week uh, about this and I thank them for their uh, sponsorship once again this week uh, the thing that, that always jumps out at me is uh, you know the, an online store that doesn't cost anything to set up I work with online stuff all the time um, and they don't cost me anything to set up but they cost me 
a significant amount of my time. If I want to do something for free or for low cost, I'm doing it myself, and it's taken me a, a long, long time to do so. This is a, a, a solution that can really take that out of a, a person's hands, whether that's the head coach themselves, someone in the athletic office, uh, an assistant coach, a GA, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, if you're D3, you know time is one thing you don't have a lot of because you don't have 23 assistants. And uh, where FanRaise comes in, you mentioned the online stores, uh, they cost nothing to set up. They never close. You can run more than 125 um, pieces of unique uh, apparel and accessories. And then they ship all orders directly to customers. So you never have to sort through, coordinate a bulk order, do envelopes, packing, none of that stuff. You get all your time back. And I think that's one of the you know the reasons why we're happy to be sponsored by them. Yeah, it really allows a coach or an athletic department official to focus on their core job. Their core job is not to put shirts or hats or you know jackets into envelopes and boxes and ship them out to seventeen different zip codes across the country. It's to you know coach their football team or administer the athletic department. And I think that's a that's one of the great things that. Uh, Fan raise will allow people to not have to deal with. Uh, of course, also it increases fundraising for teams. They have a profit share model that really is uh, unmatched. And um, I would uh, really recommend to people to go to thefanraise.com today to sign up for your free store. That's the F A N R A I S E.com. And we thank them for their support of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. time for the Game Balls portion of our podcast, Keith, and I'm going to give mine to Justin Morrison of Brockport. That's the guy who you've probably seen the highlight of running all over St. John Fisher, literally all over St. John Fisher. Uh, The guy had three touchdowns, including runs of 35 and 42 yards, finished with 227 yards on 22 carries and a 38-7 win against St. John Fisher. Keith, uh, Brockport's on the rise. Maybe not rising fast enough, and maybe that's something we can talk about in a little bit, but uh, Justin Morrison gets my game ball. For my game ball, I'm going to go with the Mary Harden-Baylor defense, specifically Haston Adams, who had three of the crew's 10 tackles for losses against Linfield. That's a lot of tackles for losses. That's a lot. The crew builds its identity around defense and conservative offense in games against similarly similarly talented teams. And with the loss of Baylor Mullins, Matt Cody, Tedrick Smith, and some of their other defensive stalwarts, I certainly didn't think that their defense would be immediately where it was at the end of last season. And maybe when coaches look at the game video and they break it down, it isn't at that point, but from where we sit, holding a top 10 team to 141 yards is bonkers. Sure, Linfield only had three starters back on offense, if I remember correctly, and and UMHB had some key losses as well, but that's a reload, not rebuild program. So the new Linfield starters, pretty much none with names you'd recognize, there are no scrubs. At first, I thought it was a pretty even game. The score wasn't out of hand, but when you step back and really and, and see that Linfield never really threatened, I think that means that the Mary Harden-Baylor defense is going to be a big problem again. Yeah, that was certainly a dominant performance, and as I was kind of going back through that game on Saturday to kind of pull it apart, that's the those are the numbers that I looked at, too. 141 yards of total offenses. Got to be un, unfounded for a, a Linfield team. Linfield hadn't been held without a touchdown since... Since they were playing Southern Oregon, which I don't think is, it's barely part of this millennium. For a team on the rise in the poll, I'd like to spotlight Whitworth, which is the team I mentioned here last week. Uh, Pirates this week moved up to number 15, and before Whitworth and Linfield square off here in two weeks, I'd hope they may be even a little bit closer together. And that brings up uh, another of my poll-watching 101 tips. 
And if we were a more highly produced podcast, we've had like a, a theme music type drop in for poll watching 101. But uh, oh well, maybe someone out there can create a 10 uh, second snippet with a nifty track and a voiceover. Yeah, uh, email that to me. That'd be awesome. Anyway, when you're looking at a team who has moved up in the poll, take special notice of those who passed teams which didn't lose. Uh, there are a couple of those in this week's poll. I just talked about one of them. Whitworth moved up five spots, and they moved past a couple of teams that didn't lose on Saturday. Well, Whitworth moved up uh, way up my ballot this week as well, along with Brockport. But the riser I want to spotlight, uh, at risk of hammering the same theme here, uh, is Mary Harden Baylor. M- Mount Union certainly didn't do anything wrong. Uh, Played great defense, returned two interceptions for touchdown uh, in, in their win over Marietta. But if a team can't jump from number two to number one on your ballot by holding another top ten team to three points, when can it jump? Yeah. I I don't think it matters one iota to Mount Union because they judge their season much on, on how it turns out, not necessarily how it looks in week three. But I thought at the beginning of the season when we were looking at what was coming back, based on on, on what the Purple Raiders had, I thought they were the number one team in the country because the, the the defending champions had lost so much. But after that performance on Saturday against Linfield, and that's at Linfield, by the way, no short trip from Texas to Oregon, UMHB might be able to ride defense and just enough offense all the way to Salem again. That's getting way ahead, though. So for now, Mary Harden-Baylor is just my riser. Well, and Mary Harden-Baylor obviously had success against Linfield last year in Belton, but they've not had a ton of success in McMinnville, Oregon. And yeah, those teams have faced off uh, a handful of times before just the the three times in the last uh, 15 weeks of season or so. A team sliding in the pole or perhaps poised to do so in the future is Wheaton. And you're going to look at Wheaton at number four and wonder why is he spotlighting them here? But um, first of all, just numerically, not going to go full poll watcher here, but they lost about a third of their lead on North Central this week. And there are just some questions about Wheaton in terms of injuries. Missing their best cornerback, Tyler Sigler, for example. Other corners are out as well for various reasons. The first two games, as uh, Keith, you rightly pointed out in a previous pod, they were against opponents that didn't uh, weren't worthy tests for a top five team. And anything statistically out of those games probably doesn't carry a lot of meaning, especially against uh, the meat of the CCIW schedule. Quarterback-wise on Saturday, win against Carthage, uh, but only threw for 83 yards, only attempted 14 passes in that win. Quarterback play might be a question, but Spencer Peterson certainly ran well when he was in uh, when he was in a quarterback. I guess this is the this is the long way around to saying keep an eye on Wheaton going forward. Yeah, they were really dominant in that game up front. They ran the ball. Uh, the, the run discrepancy was 200 and some odd yards to, to only three allowed. So I, I think um, the lines both sides of those uh, both sides of the ball for Wheaton uh, were were pretty great against Carthage, and Carthage was a better test this year having not given up any points than it is at this point uh, some years usually. Yeah, I guess, if, a- I guess if I were to try to even refine that a little bit more, uh, currently Wheaton's ranked ahead of North Central, but if, it were, uh, if they were playing the Little Brass Bell game this week, I would definitely favor North Central. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know if I would. I spent a lot of time watching the North Central game on Saturday, and by the time I flipped over to Wheaton, they were pretty much uh, nailing it out. Or every time I looked, you know, it was not a key point in the game, and, and the other game was closer. So I spent too much time on one, not enough on the other. So I don't have a good uh, feel for both teams yet. But I, I think Wheaton is someone we Wheaton is a team we felt strongly about in the preseason based on what they had coming back, and, and they haven't done anything to. Um, to, to make us think that, that they're not going to be very good this year. But you really do judge them on how they perform against those key uh, CCIW opponents. And the main one always is North Central. 
for my slider, I honestly didn't have too many teams that fell far on on my uh, ballot. There was a uh, Twitter question from Saturday night asking where Linfield should go, whether they, they should drop out of the top 10. They didn't. Uh, they uh, they lost to the number two team on my ballot, number one team overall. Now number one team on my, my ballot. So uh, number one across the board. There's no shame in losing to that team, uh, even when you're ranked in the top 10, although it was a, a, a very thorough uh, defensive game for UMHB. I didn't move Linfield back, and neither did the overall voting panel. Illinois Wesleyan had a respectable showing against a higher-ranked team. Uh, Redlands, Muhlenberg, and Carthage all tumbled off my ballot, but they were all teams ranked below uh, 20 anyway. My sliders, though, just by a couple spots, were John Carroll and Frostburg, who we praised earlier in the podcast for their defensive clutchness, but who also nearly lost the teams they should have beaten, or they did beat, but teams they should beat. Um, So when other similar teams are pummeling their similar competition, voters have to take note. And suddenly the Brockports and Whitworths and Washington Jeffersons of the world are in the discussion for the spots beyond St. John's, Harden, Simmons, and Linfield, right around eight, which I think for the moment seems like where the drop-off is in the poll. Yeah, and I think that's where, uh, if, if you were to look at all 25 ballots, you would see there are people like you, and I would say like me, who agree that, uh, you know, who have Brockport, Whitworth, W&J, maybe even as high as nine, right? I mean, the, the spots beyond St. John's, Harden, Simmons, and Linfield kind of start in that era or in that area of the poll. Um, whereas, you know, traditionally, I think in a lot of other cases, those uh, spots are taken up uh, by other voters with Wittenberg and Johns Hopkins and, and, you know, teams that have been successful in the past. But I think you and I may not agree um, look quite as good for 2017. Yeah, and, and the the cool thing about being in September is we'll see this stuff sort sort itself out over the next couple of weeks. Midway through October, we'll have a lot more uh, data to crunch. But when you're looking at a, a Wittenberg is a great example, and they have two results, or and one is crushing a team you know it should crush, and the other one is 20 to 14 against Westminster, Pennsylvania. You don't quite know what to make of it. Um, you just need to see more from those teams before you shoot them way up the ballot. But and if you're honestly if you're looking at your ballot and not saying, hey, I'm just taking what I did in the preseason and moving everybody up a spot, but you're really reevaluating, which some people don't have time to do every week, but you should definitely take a, a, a broader look at it from time to time. Brockport's been surprisingly impressive. Their wins uh, against against really legitimate teams. I think Whitworth, you and I are maybe getting ahead of ourselves because we think that Whitworth-Linfield game is going to be better than it is some years. It's going to be a really good game, and maybe Whitworth wins. But it's not just giving them credit for something they might do later. They are crushing their opponents so far. So I I do think because St. Thomas has lost, because Whitewater's lost, suddenly the group of 10 is now a group of eight teams at the top, and and that it it just feels weird to – you're like, I'm I'm putting Frostburg State in the top 10. I'm putting – whatever Johns Hopkins or Washington Jefferson, whoever it is on your ballot that you think belongs in that spot. Um, it just hasn't traditionally been a top 10 type of team. There might be a top 25 type of team. It's it's some, you have to put somebody there at nine or 10 or wherever it is that drop off happens on your ballot. And, and it may feel like a team that belongs at 15, but they, you have to rank someone at nine. Typically, we would have uh, more of a long-form interview at this point in the uh, podcast rundown. But, uh, Keith, instead of that, I thought we would address 
uh, one of the other things that I alluded to earlier and, of course, was a big topic of discussion on Friday and on Saturday, and that is Occidental choosing to cancel its game against Pacific on Saturday because of uh, because of low numbers. The news coming out of Occidental did not specify how many players uh, were uh, able to suit up uh, from what I was able to gather from talking to a couple of players uh, through social media and through email. Uh, I got the impression that about 36 would be capable of suiting up and participating for Occidental on Saturday. And Keith, uh, I, first of all, there's a couple of things to talk about here. First of all, uh, just the fact that Occidental did this so late in the game, uh, Thursday night, uh, Pacific's basically already packing up to either get in the plane or get in the bus and drive like 17 hours down to, uh, down to Southern California. I don't actually know the distance. Um, and it just, first of all, that's just, I almost feel like there needs to be some moratorium or statute of limitations or, you know, a go, no go, uh, time. If you are in, if you're concerned that your program may not be able to field a team, it maybe you should know this before Thursday night. Definitely. I think we've said it across the site. It's, it's bad form to do it that late in the game. Um, people are, some people have left already. Some people are about to leave. People have purchased their tickets, can't get refunds or, or, uh, or can't get at least full, full refunds. You have, um, coach of Pacific tweeting that lunches will be available <laughs> because yeah. they were all, they were all packed up and ready to go. They'd already been made. Um, and, and now suddenly we, we don't need a, you know, a hundred or however many lunches it was. So yeah, it, it's definitely bad form. I, I wonder though, I mean, this, it, it this says something about your administration and I, I'm not going to pretend I know, everything that that's going on at Occidental, but just take the data points that we, that we know, right. Um, slow to cancel the game. Didn't hire a coach to August 4th. So you're behind, you're behind the game there. Uh, have not had a great history, football history in the 2000s. So it's, it, it's not an issue of football can't be successful at this school. It's just football currently is not successful at, at, at this school. So it's honestly a great campus. It's in Eagle Rock, part of L.A. Uh, it's a highly well-known, highly academically respected school. So it's, it, in theory, it shouldn't be hard to, to attract players there. But uh, they're, they're, it's been in a transition phase. They had a longtime coach. They don't have any more, and, and they're trying to restart all that. Where does football fit in? On one hand, it's easy for us to sit here and judge, um, but on the other hand, if if somebody de- does get hurt because you only have 36 players, we'd also be sitting here judging, saying, you know, why are you you playing the game with that few players? Now, 36 is, you know, you need 22 starters, two specialists, so you got 24, and then you have another half a team of backups. It, it would cer- it certainly put a lot of stress on your on your lineup, especially if you had a couple of injuries. But we've seen teams field you know you play with 30s before and technically there's 47 on the on the occidental roster this year which is which is way low for them but um i believe the the what, what you'd written was two two quit nine were injured and maybe not able to go this week and and that could explain why they don't um why they didn't make the call until late in the week they didn't realize how many players would, wouldn't be able to go but the the main thing the the things to pull away from it is one it was clearly a decision made by the administration that from everything we've been able to gather, the football team wasn't happy about it, wasn't on board with it. And I think that's where people like me and Adam Turr get a little sentimental because, you know, 
you only have 10 games a season in D3, sometimes nine. Um, And as you start to lose those opportunities, you have very few opportunities to play this game anyway, because this isn't like basketball. This isn't like baseball. We can join rec league softball after you're done tackle football. You're done from your age 21 or 22 on, except for the very few people who go on to play. Um, So it it means it means a lot to the people who play. And it, it, it puts us in a place where we question what football means to to that administration and that school and that that campus academic life right now. Rob Cushman, the, the new coach, put in basically an impossible spot. As you mentioned, not hired until August. Previous coach, you know, was uh, announced as retired in July. That's a really strange uh, timing for uh, for an announcement of a coaching change of any kind. It was the uh, uh, it was the last coaching change of the season. This is a a situation where you're now taking over a program that really hasn't done much since uh, since Dale Weedolf was let go. Uh, Weedolf is the longtime coach who Keith referenced to took them to the national quarterfinals, for example, was really a, a uh, you know possibly I I guess Keith the best Skyac team in the in the automatic bid era. Yeah, it's it's pretty close. I mean, there Cal Lutheran had a nice run. Uh, later in the the late part of the 2000s, and Redlands has had some good teams, but that those were the 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 good Occidental teams with the, when they had a couple of good quarterbacks were, were were the ones that advanced in the playoffs. And if there, you know, of course, the question that uh, remains as well is now they have another bye next week in week four. They come back week five. They're scheduled to play Redlands. If they don't play the conference schedule, if they cut their season off at one game that's something that's uh not quite unprecedented but it's pretty unprecedented i think when when if if you're rob cushman and you take this job you're going from minnesota morris to occidental so in, in theory somewhere that's a a upgrade in in football status and an upgrade probably in life status you get to live in sunny southern california uh, it seems like a great opportunity so i i know as a coaching staff it's it's tough to put a staff together. It's it's tough to recruit. You maybe have a lost lost year recruiting. Um, it's hard to put roots down because you you know instead of having all these relationships with California high school coaches like a long time coaching staff would, you're starting from scratch. And, and part of that that's part of your staff building when you're doing that. So I know that that from a long term perspective, it losing one game or not playing one game may be uh, a, you know accidental. It has a little egg on its face this week, but they get over it and they they build going forward, and maybe they get that program back to where it was, or at least back to respectability. But Pat, you're right. If if you don't see in a couple of weeks progress, if you see them um, deciding to, to cancel the season, um, taking other steps to de-emphasize football, or or say, hey, we may not be able to field a team this season, it does make you wonder about the the long-term future of the program. We've seen Lewis and Clark cancel portion of their season and survive Lewis and Clark football is still alive and well and that's somewhat a similar institution to Occidental on the west coast in uh, in Portland in the northwest conference and we've seen teams just drop football Swarthmore is the one that comes to mind I'm sure there's been ones more recently than that but uh, yeah but that's the one where they wanted to save it and they and they just couldn't yeah, um, unfortunately, we keep a list of uh, of teams that have added football. There's a smaller list of uh, schools that have dropped it. Swarthmore's on the list. Uh, New Jersey City, UMass Boston used to play Division Three football. Blackburn, Principia, uh, especially Blackburn and Principia and Swarthmore, all places where numbers were always an issue. But uh, lots of teams have played with 36 
or fewer. Uh, I'm pretty sure a couple of other Division three programs right now are suiting up 36 players or fewer. So, Yeah, how we got through that whole thing without mentioning Maranatha Baptist by name is, is odd because they were pretty much perennially the lowest, yeah. the fewest uh, active players every year, and, and they hung on to football up until uh, this was it this past season or this season before? They all run together for me now, Pat. <laughs> yeah, this past season, unfortunately, is the, uh, uh, is the, it was the end of Maranatha Baptist football. Moving on with the countdown. Keith, for my hidden highlight, I'm going to go to a place where a lot of highlights get hidden, and that's the NESCAC. I'm going to pull out the uh, D3 Football 101 here again in a minute, but first the details. Uh, because it's been a down few years for Williams, which used to be a regular contender for the NESCAC title, but hasn't won it since 2010. Hasn't even had a winning season since 2011. Last year, after kind of sleepwalking through six years under Coach Aaron Kelton, they hit rock bottom at 0-8. Mark Raymond's first recruiting class over looks like it's going to have an opportunity to change that up a bit. Eves had multiple freshmen in the starting lineup. Uh, sorry, I will never say first years. I'm going to call them freshmen. Uh, that includes starting quarterback Bobby Mamarin and uh, wide receiver Frank Stola. Mamarin connected with Stola for a 93-yard touchdown pass early in the second quarter and finished with 283 passing yards for two scores and a 28-14 win over Bowden. Stola, seven catches for 168 yards. So beating Bowden is obviously only the very first step, the very first step you can take toward getting off the bottom in the NESCAC, but it's a start. Uh, and I'll save the D3 Football 101 in the NESCAC until later in our show because I, I think I've talked here enough already. Well, my hidden highlight might not stay hidden because I think it's in the play of the week package and it deserves to be there for the call alone. Take that either way you want to take it, the on-air call or the play call. This is uh, Buena Vista, the Beavers, and Central Dutch. They're in the first overtime. And after the Dutch score and kick the point after, Buena Vista scores and decides after a timeout to go for two. Two overtime periods before it's mandated. The play call is the handoff pitch reverse. That's the OG reverse, not an end around. Uh, or any kind of jet sweep, it, it's the it's the uh, handoff, flip it to the guy coming the other direction. And T.J. Lint has to go over two central players at the goal line to get in for the game winner. And it's a gutsy call because if it works, you win, and it, and it did. But if it doesn't, you lose, and, and it's all on that, that call. It's the kind of call that can really spur a team on for the rest of the season. But to, to be honest, you know, it, it's not like Central didn't get any penetration on the D-line. It was dicey. It was inches. Practice is going to be fun in Storm Lake on Monday because you love coming to the field uh, on a high like that, winning a game in that in that sort of uh, fashion. And uh, Buena Vista got it done. And I cannot remember many times on the podcast, if any, over the years when we have said that. Buena Vista. This is also this is why you come to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast to get properly pronounced Buena Vista. You might look at it and say that's Buena Vista, and you just don't know how they pronounce it in Storm Lake, Iowa. It's no, it's, and then and while we're on the topic, it's not Hamline, it's not <laughs> Gustavus Adolphus, Mullenberg, Algahaney. Those are the classics, right? Feel. <laughs> the classics, uh, especially Mullenberg and Algahaney, which uh, was the 2003 selection show on ESPN News, which still reverberates 14 years later. You can pull the year off the top of your head. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Well, there are not a lot of years that uh, Al Gahaney and Molenberg were in the playoffs at the same time. So, Fair enough. I was telling someone the other day, I remember 1999 to 2005 much better than I can separate 2015 from 2014 from 2016. When, when their years run together, it's only been the last five or so. That's an interesting point, and I guess a lot of them finished out the same way, or, or you had similar teams, we had a similar knowledge of D3, uh, similar power teams is what I was trying to say. Those years maybe 
in context are much more similar than years back in the late 90s when you know you'd watch like Rowan and her sinus in a playoff game and then you'd see Simpson in the playoffs or something there are there were definitely teams in in, in the late uh, 90s early 2000s that had great runs and the fact the fact that we've been doing this so long that Brockport can go from like a final four team down to a eh, mediocre team and now is now creeping back up in, in the top 25 is, is just proof that we've been doing this for quite a while. Well, I'm glad you didn't say we were doing it for too long. I'm going to move on and say that my double take was a game I literally did the full double take on. The full double take for me is the point where you double check the rosters in the box score and the live stats to make sure that home and away are listed correctly, that they haven't been flipped in the live stats and you're looking at the score that's backwards. And, and that's what the double take is all about. In this case, for me, it's Greenville beating Northwestern 21-15. to 15. Uh, Northwestern was expected to be a contender in the UMAC this year. You know, they won the UMAC last year. Greenville expected to be taking up a position near the bottom of the standings like they did in 2016. And typically there's some flux in the middle to bottom two-thirds of this conference, but not like this. Uh, it reads like a pretty nondescript game on paper, and the, the small part I, I watched of it uh, online and the archive bears that out. Both teams struggling to be effective on offense, but especially Northwestern averaging under three yards a snap. It's just a puzzle of a game, but what it does in that conference is it really opens things up for teams like St. Scholastica, Eureka, McMurray, the other teams I expected to contend for the automatic bid. That, that's maybe a, a pretty obscure game between you know number 225 and number 189 or something like that, but I definitely did the full-on double take on that. Well, before I get to my double take, shout out to former Linfield coach Jay Losey and, and Lewis and Clark for breaking a long losing streak and doing it against a Pomona Pitzer team that was coming off an impressive road win in Tennessee. That's a long trip from Cali to Tennessee at Rhodes. Uh, you'll get to that later. So my double take has to be Brevard, a new to Division Three team whose name I'm not even still 100% certain I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, they hung a 63-7 loss on Greensboro. A uh, couple factoids about Brevard. They're a North Carolina-based member of the USA South uh, first season. Uh, they came from the Division II Appalachian Athletic Conference. Uh, if you've never heard of it, it's the same conference as Savannah College of Art and Design and the other union, the one from Kentucky. They were fellow members. Uh, Brevard started football in 2006 or brought it back after a long hiatus. Their Wikipedia page says their mountain biking team is good and disc golf is huge on campus. And all-name team nominee Bubba Craven had six catches for 169 yards and three touchdowns against Greenboro, while fellow all-name team nominee Jarkevius Hopkins had 13 carries, 147 yards, two touchdowns. So uh, that's a team where I don't have to get to know in the USA South. As far as I know, you're pronouncing Brevard correctly. Um, uh, we kind of work our rundown, our bullet points, our script in a, um, in, a, in a shared document online. Just one of those things to try to keep us both on track. I was watching Keith typing the name Jarkevius Hopkins, and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. I have no idea what team that is. And I just kind of scrolled back, and I, I thought I, I'd let the podcast surprise me. And there it was. My stat of the week uh, well, uh, as briefly mentioned earlier, but the Mary Harden-Baylor-Linfield game took place with neither team taking a snap in the red zone. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor never got closer than the Linfield 27. That's where John Mowry kicked a 44-yard field goal, putting the crew up 10-0. Uh, 
Uh, Linfield got to the Mary Hart and Baylor 24 on the first drive of the game, and uh, Willie Warney missed a 41-yard attempt wide left. Uh, Mary Hart and Baylor scored on a, uh, a long Bryce Wilkerson kickoff return. Have you seen that before? Uh, they scored on a, another long run, a, a long run by uh, TJ Josie, the quarterback. They scored on that 44-yard field goal, and yeah, I, it's a game where nobody was in the red zone. How about that one? September is the time of year for the weirdo road trips, and I believe this is the week that Washington and Lee from Virginia and Claremont Mudscripts from California played each other. Yep. Uh, my side of the week comes from another one of the weirdo road trips. hampton Sydney from Virginia <laughs> outgained Wisconsin-Platteville 329-328, but had seven fumbles, losing three of them in a 38-29 home loss. Uh, the Tigers had three wide receivers with nine or more catches. Quarterback Alex Cobb threw for four touchdowns, no interceptions. So forget everything I said on last week's podcast about the Tigers. Maybe not having their traditional stud quarterback and fling it around offense. Looks like they do. In fact, I kind of wonder if that's how this game came about with Mike Emmendorfer and Marty Feverett having some mutual admiration or a relationship from a coaching clinic or something. Uh, these are things I, I would have uh, had time to call and ask 10 years ago, but alas. Um, Marty Favret probably would have had time to answer your phone call about 10 years ago as well. Um, the one thing that jumped out at me about that game, three fumbled punt returns, that's got to hurt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seven, you don't, you don't put it on the ground seven times, lose three very often and win. But when it's the same unit, the, that, that means that part of practice next week is going to be pretty tough. They're going to, they're going to, it could be fluky, but you're going to get a lot of special teams work, I, I imagine, next week because him, you don't know how an, an ODAC team is going to match up with a WIAC team, but, but Hampton Sydney acquitted itself well against a uh, top 15 team in, in Wisconsin Platteville. Uh, bonus stat of the week, technically on this rundown, since now you've told the people how the sausage is made, every week it says Pat's stat of the week and Keith. Keith's stats of the week because I have a habit of not being able to narrow it down to one. So bonus stat, uh, Franklin and Marshall and McDaniel, they managed to score 84 points this week despite converting between them just seven of 24 third down attempts. That's like, that's just, that's terrible. I mean, most uh, defensive and offensive coaches will harp on third downs. Got to, got to convert third downs, got to get third down stops. Uh, somehow uh, the the diplomats and Green Terror got 84 points and just seven converted third downs. There were some defensive scores in that game, but uh, but I think it's just one of those flukes. So we're on to quick misses. This is the part of the podcast where we review our predictions from Friday. Five regular panelists and one guest uh, each put out games to watch and uh, other random things to look for or, or predictions that we make for uh, for that week's slate of games on this this week's. Set of quick misses. Both uh, Kevin and I picked teams to get to 3-0 and that did not uh, have a game this week, so our bad on that. Uh, none of the entire panel picked a top-20 team that got upset. Even Pat, who said no one, and still someone got upset. Yeah, I, I should have uh, I don't know how I missed on that. Um, let's see. On the side of quick hits, uh, all six of us picked the UMHB Linfield game correctly, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Linfield fans who... Uh, or at least the ones who say, well, they give us no chance. No, no, very specifically a chance, just, you know, not not to win. Um, of course, there was no right or wrong answer to the name your rivalry here question, but have to give uh, Ryan Tips props. He won the day there anyway, uh, naming the game between the Averett Cougars and the Ferrum Panthers, the Cat Scratcher. Quality stuff. 
Uh, Kevin Neus, uh, who you mentioned, Frank Rossi, Adam Tur, and I all correctly picked a NESCAC winner not named Amherst or Trinity. And I, I promise we'll get to that NESCAC 101. I haven't forgotten about it. We'll do that. Uh, and then right afterwards, Keith will break down the Mountain Union quarterback situation that uh, we left out in podcast number 173. Wasn't it in the rolling outtakes? If you, if you stayed with us long enough, it was in there. Yeah, actually. <laughs> uh, so you don't listen all the way through then. I, do, I, I swear we dealt with that. I, we, I just think I don't remember things we, as well we, as I used to. No, we did record it, but uh, again, in post, it, it uh, hit the cutting room floor because I was trying to get it under an hour ten. Uh, sorry. I'm a huge – I love it's, to listen to the end of podcasts. I feel I feel like it's not complete. This is a, a, a Apple iTunes thing. Like you don't get credit in the meta, meta tagging oh, yeah. for listening to something unless it gets to the end. So I, that's how I am with podcasts too. I have to listen to it till the file cuts off. In all honesty, I, I love the end of podcasts. Uh, I, most podcasts have cool stuff at the end better than uh, the stuff that we put at the end. Although, you know, I like to think that we're funny. Um, if not, I'm sure people will let us know. Moving on to our question on Twitter. Uh, this week, I actually remembered to program the tweet to go out. I, I'm going to do that like the rest of the season now. I have uh, in my little uh, running list, I have uh, the next 11 weeks a, a tweet set to go out on Sunday night. That's not really true, but uh, hopefully I'll do that. This one comes from Craig Breakspear. That's at C Breakspear, B-R-E-A-K-S-P-E-A-R, uh, asking big game between Barry College and center prediction. And, you know, typically, Keith, um, you know, we don't do a whole lot of specific win-loss predictions uh, in the middle of the season. Uh, the Mary Harden-Baylor-Linfield one was a special case because you got two top six teams. But uh, I think the interesting thing about this game, Keith, is that uh, it's such a contrast in styles, right? Center's going to put a ton of points on the board or going to want to put a ton of points on the board, and Barry is going to try to do the exact opposite to you. Yeah, I mean, Barry right now is making a name for itself nationally, uh, because of its its defense, or at least because of one of its defensive players, center is kind of kind of flies under the radar. I think pro- probably for in that group of teams where you're maybe from like 50 or 60th overall to right outside the top 25, they've been hanging in there for for several seasons now under Andy Fry. Um, I think the thing that would worry me if I was Barry and, and, and Anderson and, and Hendricks not necessarily the same quality defenses, and these were both home games, but center 61 points two weeks ago, 52 last week. Uh, that's a high-powered offense. That game's going to be 6 o'clock under the lights. Right now, um, I, I voted for uh, Barry. I put them at the, at the end of my ballot this week and didn't put center in there, although center was in consideration. So if, if I got to stick to my ballot, I would pick uh, Barry. If, if you're making me make a prediction, the game's also it's at Barry um, this week. But I, I think it's another one of those toss-up games, and, and it'll be one that gives us a lot of information as to where the SAA goes from here. I think one of the things that uh, was a question about center coming into the season has really been answered by one of those things that you just mentioned, Keith, all the offense that they've put up over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, they lost their offensive coordinator over the offseason. Tony Joe White uh, moved on to Birmingham Southern, where he's the head coach now. And uh, But, you know, nonetheless, uh, even though the – guy who uh, called the offense and ran the offense has moved on that's a as you said a couple of uh, big numbers of points Anderson might be one thing putting up 61 against Anderson might not be something you write home about Um, but you know it's hard to say Hendricks in its fifth season is a more established program than Anderson that's what I was about to say but I'm going to stick with it I believe it all righty I'll take your word for it (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks, Craig Breakspear. And uh, again, every Sunday, uh, starting sometime about 8 o'clock Eastern, you tweet us those questions, and we'll pick one of them, at least one of them, to put on the air here in this podcast. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Up to the point in our podcast, which to me is the uh, is the yes and. It's the uh, playing the improv game. Every thought of yours, Keith, is a friend of mine. And that little lick from uh, DJ Mentos runs through my head all the time right now. But uh, this uh, first thought off the top of my head... Uh, SUNY Maritime beating its cross-bay rival Merchant Marine uh, rallying with 14 points in the fourth quarter. You know, it's one of those rivalries where in the past it seemed always to me like SUNY Maritime cared much more about this rivalry, thought it was much more of a rivalry than uh, Merchant Marine did, and I'm sure probably because Merchant Marine is focused on Coast Guard. That's their rival, as it should be, but uh, Maritime goes across the bay and uh, improves to 3-0, just the second time in program history. Big win. I'll be really impressed when they start actually go- going across the bay to get to that game. Well, I've, I've mapped it. It's the, it's a cl- it's super close. Yeah. Well, it takes forever. There, it, it's it's like 16 miles by bus, and like three miles across the water or something. They really should. I don't, uh, I don't know what the regulations are about that, but uh, they should do that. Yeah, SUNY Maritime is in Throgsneck, New York. Yeah. And Merchant Marine is famously at Kings Point because it used to be called Kings Point. At least back when I was uh, getting recruiting letters, there was it was called Kings Point back then. And I, I think 90s, early 90s folks called it that. Yeah. Uh, I digress. But that was one of that's every thought of mine. That's what we do. We digress. <laughs> so the FNM McDaniel game, I think I briefly touched on it, got a little weird early. Uh, two early two point conversion missed in the first first quarter. Frank the Marshall stuck on 18 points for a while. McDaniel scores with four seconds left before halftime, and then it, it kicks blocked late in the game. Just end up being 40 um, 43 41. Franklin and Marshall. Uh, it wasn't a dramatic finish necessarily uh, because the scoring stopped with 10 minutes to go. But you know, it was a 94-yard kickoff return. There was kicks blocked, missed kicks. It was just one of those weird scores, it, it, weird games if you look back at it. I think the thought, though, is is now I'm kind of curious if uh, Franklin and Marshall's for real. After an impressive, so far, three-game start, the Diplomats face Susquehanna, Muhlenberg, and Johns Hopkins in succession. That's definitely running the uh, running the gauntlet in the uh, Centennial Conference. I'm curious as to how for real Susquehanna is too. Susquehanna just beat Muhlenberg, uh, and they were really close against Johns Hopkins the week before. Uh, I promised that NESCAC 101. So if you are new to Division Three football, here in 45 seconds or less, I don't have the timer. Uh, is the NESCAC. NESCAC, New England Small College uh, Athletic Conference, they do not participate in the NCAA playoffs, similar to the Ivy League at the Division I FCS level. Uh, these schools, which see themselves similarly, just decline to allow their football teams to participate in the postseason. So they play now a nine-game schedule, used to be eight, uh, all within the conference, no non-conference play, so that's one place where they're different from the Ivy League, and, and that is why we don't rank them in conference rankings. It's very difficult for a, a top 25 vote to figure out where to put them because they don't play anybody outside of their little group. So that's uh, that's your 101 on the New England Small College Athletic Conference. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like to make the comparison. Like if Johns Hopkins is a, is a highly regarded academic school, if that can be a top 15 school, then so could a top uh, NESCAC school. But there's just no data to, to back that up. So it's always kind of been a, a subjective thing. 
Uh, speaking of new to D3, if if you're new or if you've been following for a long time but you just have uh, no idea who the heck this George Fox team is, um, it's a fairly new member of the Northwest Athletic Conference. Chris Casey is the coach. He's a Linfield guy, started the program uh, not too far down the road, actually, from uh, from. Linfield, which is in McMinnville, Oregon. George Fox is in Newburgh, Oregon. The reason we're talking about them, though, is uh, pretty impressive first two games at Wisconsin-Platteville, which is a ranked team, and then at home against Redlands uh, out of California, also a ranked team. They went 1-1 in those games, beat Redlands 13-10, lost at Platteville 30-28. And I think this is not quite a top 25 team yet but you look at who they're playing uh the next several weeks and and they may get a chance to play themselves into the top 25 which would be for the first time ever it's the geez i don't know fourth season fifth season of george fox football i i'm telling you pat i i, I got the the years run together more than ever this year but uh but in any case uh, Wisconsin Eau Claire at home is the next game. Uh, then, then Pacific, which will be eager to play since it, it got its game canceled. And then uh, October seventh at Whitworth. If uh, if if George Fox uh, is still riding high, um, middle of October, I think uh, that's a team that you may see creep up into the rankings. Stat boy in my ear wants to remind us all that uh, George Fox is in its fourth year of football. Uh, we're going to stick in the Portland area. Portland, Oregon. Uh, reminder that Lewis and Clark off the schneid, winning for the first time in the J. Losey era by defeating Pomona Pitzer 40-29. to That might sound wrong to you, but it's not. Uh, even though Losey is in his third season with the Pioneers, this was his team's first win. It snapped a 33-game losing streak, which was, uh, I believe, the longest in, in Division Three football. Now, if it wasn't before, Earlham is. And Earlham was, uh, was kind of close on Saturday, but no dice. Well, while we're in the Pacific Northwest, we mentioned the uh, the Occidental cancellation, and we we didn't mention uh, that Pacific Lutheran had had its game canceled uh, through no fault of its own. Its opponent was a non-Division three opponent coming from the part of Florida that uh, got hit pretty hard by Hurricane Irma. If you go back through the history of D three, hurricanes have have hit um, different spots along the East Coast have have greatly affected games. Um, that's happened several times, but it's usually been a Virginia team or a Delaware team uh, that's affected. It's you, you never see a hurricane cause a cancellation for a Pacific Northwest team. Every thought of yours is northwest of mine. We didn't mention it at the top because it didn't fit into the theme about defense. And, well, we've gotten all the way to this point without mentioning W&J's win against Thomas Moore, the uh, swan song for... Uh, the W&J Thomas Moore game in this conference. Uh, Jesse Zubik, six touchdown catches, more than 300 receiving yards, just amazing. My uh, my last thought or my my thought at the bottom here is something that I had on the list uh, on the rundown since about the middle of uh, Saturday evening, and that was to first point out uh, Worcester's off to a great start, off to a three and zero start, but that was all overshadowed on Sunday uh, when the news came that uh, Clayton Guybe was a, a senior on the uh, football team. Uh, died at a local hospital. He was transported to the hospital Saturday after uh, complaining he did not feel well following the uh, uh, the finish of the Worcester game against Ohio Wesleyan. Um, and uh, you know, just condolences to the Guybe family and our prayers for everybody within the family, within the Worcester football and the Worcester athletics family and the North Coast Athletic Conference. And where where we are now, as at the time we record the podcast, a lot of information unknown to us as far as as what happened but always 
always uh, condolences. Keith, I got to bring Statboy back out for you, I think, here. Yeah, I have uh, corrections and clarifications from last week's podcast. So if you're a longtime listener uh, or if you read Quick Hits on Friday, I got a few things I got to run down. We gave game names uh, for fun in Quick Hits. Part of uh, part of what you've done with Quick Hits over the past couple years is take it from a heavy analysis of some games during the week to something a little more quick and fun. We don't put as much time in it, and it's also just a much more breezy read. Uh, so we gave we one of the questions this week was to, to rename games. Yeah, I tried to rename a game that already has a name, Loris and Dubuque. Both those uh, Iowa conference schools are in Dubuque, Iowa, along the Mississippi River. That's already called the Key City Clash. I did not remember that. I didn't either. Uh, the Catholic Randolph Macon 50-50 game. I think I mentioned it last week's podcast. That was in 1995. I believe I said 96 last week, but dedicated podcast listeners should know what happened in the 1996 game. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> I misspoke about Mary Harden Baylor on last week's podcast. I said the crew defeated Linfield in the playoffs for the first time last season. They defeated Linfield twice last season, both in the regular season and playoffs. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor is now four and three in the series with Linfield after losing the first four matchups against the Wildcats. I also worded something last week that made it sound uh, at least to one listener like Concordia Moorhead was in the CCIW. We're all clear here. The Cobbers are in the Mayak. I was at the time referencing uh, four CCIW teams on my top 25 ballot, although after this week, it's back down to three. And that was uh, Corrections and Clarifications brought to you by... Uh, the I can't come up with the right accounting firm, the one that uh, the one that put the wrong name in the envelope at the Oscars. So I'm good. Deloitte, Deloitte and Touche is not Price Waterhouse. I don't know. You're right. See, I, that would, how good bad would that be to get the wrong one? <laughs> well, we we certainly covered the bases there. <laughs> uh, Keith, I have sent along to you uh, a picture of this week's entry from the Craig Burroughs collection. Uh, the Craig Burroughs collection, of course, is this collection of uh, various college football memorabilia that is in my garage. Um, much of it is not about Division Three, so I have to keep going through boxes on Sunday afternoons to pull out things that are about Division Three. And what I have here is the initial media guide for East Texas Baptist football, or at least for the revival of the program when they brought it back in 2000 after a 50-year absence. And I've uh, sent a picture of it along to you, Restoring the Roar. Yeah, and hopefully you'll get a chance to see this picture on Twitter when you hear the podcast. Um, I definitely looked at this and said, boy, that looks like before 2000, those guys playing football on that cover there. Yeah. That's because that picture is uh, is from not quite the leather helmet era, but it's from the last game that East Texas Baptist played or the last season, one of the previous seasons before the 50-year the absence. Uh, East Texas Baptist all the way back now. Uh, for uh, been to the playoffs a couple times and, and they've been uh, competitive, so that was a a solid move, I guess, on East Texas Baptist part. One of the things that jumped out at me here is uh, this was one of those programs where, if I remember correctly, the uh, they had a head coach for uh, a year or two and then immediately switched to the guy who built this program, Ralph Harris. Uh, was uh, what I th- what I did not know because this happened before we started the website. In 1998, he was the offensive coordinator at Mary Harden Baylor, and 98 was Mary Harden Baylor's first year of football. Yeah, and, and Texas has um, several divisions of football. You'll see uh, everything from NAIA, junior college, uh, one FCS, two, and, and Division three wasn't a big presence. There was a huge presence 
in Texas in terms of number of schools, but um, but the 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 schools that do play football in Texas carry an outsized influence in uh, in D three. None of these guys that uh, are, were on the roster, I think, are on the. I should say on the coaching staff uh, went on to take over as head coach that I can remember. But uh, the first name that uh, uh, popped out at me was uh, in the roster was Scott Verhalen, the punter who uh, went on to be a uh, uh, all American punter and also a pro prospect. But uh, let's look ahead to next week. Um, we're already, uh, you know, we're already an hour into this podcast and have yet to mention the Tommy Johnny game somehow. Well, you're, you're calling it Tommy Johnny game. You may, by the end of the weekend, be calling it the Johnny Tommy game. Uh, St. John's and St. Thomas, uh, they're playing at Target Field. That's the home of baseball's Minnesota Twins. But um, it's also the, the game that uh, draws the, the highest attendance in D3, especially when, uh, when both of those teams are good. St. Thomas and St. John's, obviously, they have a lot in common with the, uh, with the, the, the Catholic nature of both schools. But... One's a city school. One's an hour outside the city. They they certainly have a lot um, a lot of differences as well. Really, really um, active, for lack of a better word, fan bases excite. They just really get into it. I mean, they would they fill up Clemens Stadium. They fill up O'Shaughnessy for this game. Now they're thinking you could get as many as twenty five thousand people at Target Field for this. And it's not just a spectacle. This is a huge game. Ranking-wise, and for St. Thomas, which already has a loss, uh, an unexpected one, uh, they they pick up their second loss, and and they be on maybe on the outside looking in in uh, in terms of the playoff picture, and that's a team that we started we thought starting the season uh, had stag bowl potential. Keith, you and I were both at the Millsaps Mississippi College game in Jackson Memorial Stadium, right? Yeah, yeah. Remember what nine thousand people in that sixty thousand seat stadium looked like? Yeah, and, and that was that was a pretty good rivalry game. Nine thousand is a great crowd for a ten thousand seat stadium. Not so much in, in, in a stadium where you just see slabs of concrete. In, in this case, you know you'll have the the intimate feel of of Target Field. Um, it's a big stadium, but it also has a lot of touches of home. Uh, you never know how football is going to play in a baseball stadium, but but I think the way they have it um, set, it looks like it'll wrap about about. About halfway around the field, maybe two thirds of the way around, uh, and and pretty big split between the Johnny side and the Tommy side. So it should be should be a fun one to watch either in person or from afar. Uh, other games coming up on Saturday. We mentioned that uh, Center is heading to Barry. That's a key game in the SAA. Uh, Frostburg State. We we talked about how they had to survive on the road against Christopher Newport. Now they go to Rowan. Uh, Rowan put up uh, some points against uh, William Patterson, but uh, offensively has been kind of some questions this year. Yeah, and and that's been Rowan for the past few years now. But it's also a team that every team in the NJAC has to take seriously. That game is in Glassboro, so uh, could be a big one in in the NJAC or in in the East. Uh, Stevenson at Delaware Valley, likewise. Uh, Stevenson getting beat uh, badly in Week One against Frostburg, 33-7, took them uh, out of the top 25 picture, but still a a test uh, at Delaware Valley. John Carroll at Heidelberg, a couple of those those teams. You know, we talked about John Carroll having a, a hang on. And beat Ball and Wallace. Now you, you go to Heidelberg, which is off to a pretty good start. Texas Lutheran at Mary Harden Baylor. Texas Lutheran big winner on Saturday against Bellhaven, 37-0. Baldwin Wallace at Mount Union. Probably should have kept those two OAC uh, games together in the in the rundown. Uh, poor job organizing by me. I'll take the blame for that. 
And then one more week, uh, you know, this week, the huge uh, St. John, St. Thomas game. One, and one more week, the week after this one, Oshkosh, Whitewater, Linfield, Whitworth, and a bunch of other good games. So September in D3, it's just going to keep, uh, keep the big games rolling. If you're an Oshkosh fan and, you know, you're disappointed by the fact that you have a second consecutive bye week, get on Route 29, head west uh, four and a half to five hours to get to Minneapolis and take in that uh, that uh, St. Thomas, St. John's game. You won't regret it. And hopefully uh, they will brief all of the officiating crews in the American Southwest Conference as to what a legal kick is. It is, to my reading of the rules, as at the top of the show, it is never legal to kick a loose ball. And scene. You brought everything full circle. Wonderful. <laughs> and this was Around the Nation podcast number 175 for the week of September 18th, 2017. Thanks for listening and tune into the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this and other fine podcasts. Assuming you consider this a fine podcast, that will help other football fans find the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Our executive producer is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com and Thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three Football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three Sports. Did you know that? You can join the conversation by registering with a legitimate email address to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook as well. We have all sorts of content new to D3Football.com each week during the season, so keep an eye out for the D3Football.com Play of the Week on Mondays, around the region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Adam Turr's Around the Nation column on Thursday, our weekly predictions on Friday, and all of the game coverage wall-to-wall-to-wall-to-wall. To wall to wall to wall. On a Saturdays. That's the podcast. Snap judgment on Sundays. Snap judgment on Sundays. Why do I not have this in here? I don't know. Because game coverage on Saturdays. You feel like that's the end of the week. Um, this is a week, by the way, if we're still rolling and people are still listening, check out the play of the week. Two, I would say two jaw droppers at least in there. Um, and, and neither is, is one of them include someone dropping their cleats practically on someone's jaw. There was enough air in a lot of those plays that uh, someone could do that. Sure, whatever you say. This is the time in the podcast where we dance. Oh, sweet. I didn't know we could dance. <laughs>